Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. everyone welcome to babylon 5 versus deep space 9 i'm bob from cascadia i got matt from the southland on the line how you doing today matt doing pretty well feeling much better great great glad glad you've recovered after your intensive uh, juicing regimen it's good to have you back with us um so today we're covering uh season one episode five of babylon five uh, parliament of dreams which uh, aired on the 23rd of february 1994 and we're covering the uh, ds9 episode uh 13 of season one battle lines which aired uh, on the 25th of april 1993 Matt, do you want to kick us off with a quick summary of Parliament of Dreams? No problem, yeah. Uh, it starts off with an old political nemesis of Ambassador Jakar. Uh, sends this uh, deathbed message to Jakar saying that he's uh, hired an assassin that's going to kill Jakar within the next two days. So the whole episode basically has Jakar freaking out, watching his back, trying to make sure that uh, you know any encounter he has is not his last yeah, and then in the B plot, we've got uh, Commander Sinclair's old uh, flame, Catherine Sakai, uh, who happens to pass through uh, Babylon 5. And she's a replacement character for um, Sinclair's uh, girlfriend in the TV movie, The Gathering, whose name I've honestly already forgotten. Uh, it so. was Carolyn, Bobby. Carolyn, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awful, awful. Um, so, yeah. We, I, I, was we, very, I was very glad that they actually did tie that up though because when i was watching it that was when i made my notes i said wait a minute i thought he already had a girlfriend I'm like okay then they they, they tied that up in the episode so, yeah the yeah and i guess it's worth stressing uh just so we don't think uh that uh, commander sinclair is uh, a very prolific lover or anything that the uh, tv movie in season one are about a year apart i i think they refer to this a few times in season one but it's like a most people have been on the, the Babylon 5 station for at least a year early in season one. So that's kind of worth stressing. So what you're saying is that uh, Babylon 5 is a port of call, not a port for Sinclair. 
<laughs> oh, just you wait. The, the romance plots get really bad in season three. Really bad. <laughs> but uh, did you want to talk us through our uh, last uh, our last subplot there? Yeah, uh, one of the other things going on in the station this particular episode, we have this week-long festival of religions. All the different species have religions, and they're sharing what makes them unique. And Sinclair the entire time is trying to figure out what he can do to represent Earth's dominant religion. Which, I mean, if, if you live on Earth, you know there's not really a dominant religion per se, but... Yeah, yeah. It's kind of an interesting conceit um, because all the other alien ambassadors, uh, Jakar and Londo and Delenn, have supervised like these specific rituals, whereas uh, Sinclair opts to just totally avoid having a ritual, and he just lines up, you know, more than 17 uh, uh, priests and pastors or just adherents of different faiths from Earth and just, you know, lines them up uh, murderer's row style and then takes the ambassadors down and introduces each of them. So it's, a, you know, it's kind of like a nice little 90s multiculturalism moment. Um, you know, it's very inclusive, a lot of indigenous religions, um, a lot of variants of Christianity. Um, there's even an atheist. There's also a kind of funny, a little funny minor joke um, in the in the beginning of the episode with Catherine arrives on the station on a transport named the Spinoza. And uh, Spinoza was a famous Dutch Jewish philosopher who uh, had a kind of pantheistic metaphysics and ethics, which, you know, kind of meaning God is nature, God is all sort of uh, metaphysics. Although some people, both uh, supporters and uh, people who wanted to label him a heretic, read that as a, a crypto-atheistic meta metaphysics. He was denying a necessity or a need for God outside of nature. But anyway, that opening up with a, a ship named after Spinoza is kind of a funny little joke. So the trick Sinclair comes up with is a nice bit of 90s multiculturalism and introduces us to uh, all of these uh, different religious practices on Earth. But it does kind of run up into this old problem of science fiction where aliens, uh, excuse me, where humans get to be diverse. We have many languages, many cultures, many different religious practices, whereas alien species in science fiction tend to be imagined as monolithic. They tend to be imagined as, you know, having a fairly narrow range of personality traits. Um, they also tend to be uh, imagined as not having like very cultural variations in the same way that, you know, we know humans of Earth have today. So in that way, it's kind of playing into a weird trope of science fiction. Uh, given that Star Trek is maybe even more notorious than Babylon 5 for having this sort of monolithic portrayals of aliens, of like, you know, Vulcans are logical, Klingons are bloodthirsty and honorable, Romulans are devious. I was sort of curious, Matt, like, what were you thinking just, you know, so far, we're about five episodes into this project of how the alien portrayals of Babylon 5 and DS9 are coming off to you? What, what, I'm, what I'm seeing with the different species and uh, races on Babylon 5, it, it's, it is following suit to what we see in Star Trek. Uh, you're seeing this, this clear-cut, almost cookie-cutter definition of what a Klingon is, a cookie-cutter definition of what uh, a Membari is they're they're very they're not unique in a sense as, as from uh, character to character. I mean, you all you see you see all the Klingons you see on DS9 are the same. All the Ferengi you see on DS9 are the same. Uh, most of the Bajorans are all freedom fighters. It seems like you don't see a lot of other uh, representation there. 
Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with the Ferengi, we'll get a little bit more um, sort of variation in personality and values as DS9 goes on. Um, but yeah, certainly right now, like, you know, Rom, Quark, uh, Nog, the Negus, all, all have, you know, a pretty identical value set. And even though there's, you know, there's really fun, like, personality variation among them, they're, right. you know, they're pretty set in in their ways. We, although when we introduce some other Ferengis later and when Rom gets more developed. Right, Rom breaks the mold kind of with for the Ferengi, in my opinion, later on in the season. I mean, here it's kind of interesting how slowly they're developing Rom, too. Like, I think in the, I, I wasn't taking careful note of this, but I think in the first couple episodes, he doesn't even have a name. And then I think they, they give him a name in the Negus episode, but he's still just very, very scheming and just like a less efficient quark. There's no sense that there's, you know, a, a, another side of Rom or he has other interests. You just get the feeling that he's, you know, just not as good at quark as, you know, being a cutthroat businessman. Speaking of cutthroat, like Jakar and Natoth is this the newest uh, aide that he gets this time around, correct? Is that her name? Yeah, yeah, Natoth. As far as the Narn go, they seem to be cut from the same cloth as well. They're all kind of, you know, backstabbing, wanting to, or constantly kind of at each other's throats. Did you get that from the Narn at all? Like, yeah, you see yeah, that? Yeah. Another common trope with them? It, it does seem to be, although I, I, the Narn do get a lot more developed because they they are kind of cartoonishly villainous early yes. in Babylon 5 season 1 although it's it's worth inter- it's worth noting that even though they they all have these broad similarities like Natop seems to be a pretty different personality than Kodoth um who was Jakar's original aide and apparently they wrote um they wrote Kodoth out because uh the actress uh hated the makeup and so they, yeah, there's just a, there's a casual line in this episode uh, that she gets taken out by one of your airlocks. So, uh, you know, you're, you're proven right yet again. Uh, congratulations. Yeah, they, they, everyone gets stuck out of airlocks apparently on these, these stations. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to imagine um, it was this episode originally written for Kodoff's character. And was this supposed to be like, you know, Kodoff and Jakar's like reconciliation episode because uh, they got off to a kind of rocky start in um, the in the earlier Kodoth episode, or it could just be that they decided to go in a just different direction. Because um, you know, although there's a, there's you know upfront tension between Natoth and Jakar, because Jakar is paranoid because of this assassination plot, and he suspects Natoth. Like they actually turn out to work very well together and they have this chemistry that I, I really admired. And, you know, there's a kind of a shared deviousness to them, but I don't know. They, they also like kind of use each other's foils really well. It kind of reminds me of like the dynamic of like a screw screwball comedy. So in that way, at least I was satisfied. It didn't feel like Jakar and Natoth were exactly the same. It felt like they had a kind of real relationship of two individuals. Yeah, I, I like Nick Nata- I like the Toth character better so far. I wasn't too uh, impressed with the the original character. What was her name again? Uh, Kodoth. Kodoth. Yeah, I, I didn't even really remember the character because it just didn't stick well. I'll yeah, show her teeth like twice, I think, and that was about it. But you're I right. Maybe that character was to develop into something different. I mean, I just they didn't give it time, and she didn't want to do it. So yeah, but I, yeah. I was impressed with it. I was impressed with the Toth. I thought she was. Uh, much more interesting character. 
I will say from what I've seen, um, they don't, Natoth so far, and granted, yeah, there's a lot I haven't seen, but from what I've seen so far, Natoth doesn't really live up to her promise as a character. Um, they they do a lot of development for the uh, other two um, aides to, uh, they for Veer, who's the aide to Londo, the Centauri ambassador, and for Lanier, who's the uh, aide to Delin, the Mimbari ambassador, Londo and Lanier get a lot of uh, character development. And that doesn't really seem to be the case for Nata from what I've seen, which is kind of a missed opportunity of the show. I'll also give you a little teaser that eventually there will be an aid to the Vorlon eventually. And that's a, that's an interesting thing when that happens. Okay. Well, with, with Lanier, this is his first appearance on the station. Uh, he shows up. It's played by, he's played by Bill Mimi. Is that how you say his name? Bill Mimi? I've always thought of it as Mummy, but I don't really Mummy. know now that you mention it. Missing yeah, an M. <laughs> it's the dilemma of podcasting. You write all this stuff down, and then you have no idea how to actually say it. <laughs> yeah, when I googled when I googled his name, it said, "Did you mean Bill Murray?" And I was like, "No, I did not mean Bill Murray. Bill Mimi." Um, but anyway, he—if you remember him—he was the uh, evil kid on one of the on, on the Twilight Zone. He was also Will Robinson on Lost in Space. It, it's kind of interesting in the new Lost in Space. Have you seen it? You talking about the are the movie or the one on Netflix? Uh, the one on Netflix. The movie we just don't speak of. Yeah, the movie was in the late '90s with uh, Matt LeBlanc. There was also a Lost in Space pilot, uh, maybe like four or five years after the movie. I think like Sci-Fi or UPN or the CW, one of those networks commissioned it. And I think John Woo, the famous Hong Kong action director, actually directed it. I might be wrong about that, but I think he directed it. But apparently it was very bad and didn't go into production, but they sold all of the sets and props to the reboot of Battlestar Galactica in, you know, around, I think that came out around 2004, 2005. So all the, all the props and set designs uh, for the, the aborted Lost in Space pilot went to the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, which is just a kind of odd thing. Um, Interesting. But the yeah the new the new Lost in Space on Netflix have you seen that I know we we both seen I that. haven't seen it yet no but I, it's something I'll probably delve into after we after watching all this nineties TV <laughs> yeah yeah I really like it uh, my my uncle's a huge uh, old Lost in Space fan and we watched some of the new Lost in Space together it, it was fun um, but it, so you know the famous villain from the original Lost in Space is um, Doctor Smith right. Um, right. He's played by this really, I forget the actor's name, but a really great kind of camp British actor plays him, plays him, you know, very kind of subtextually homosexual. I don't even know if it's subtextually. It's, it's a great performance. So what they do in um, the new Lost in Space is they uh, they gender swap Dr. Smith. And so they have Parker Posey from all those 90s independent rom-coms play Dr. Smith. And she does a really great job. But she's sort of a con woman and has assumed the Dr. Smith identity. She's not actually a doctor. That's not actually her name. And she assumed it from a, a guy on a ship. And the guy on the ship, she steals his identity from, is played by Bill Mummy. Strangely enough, too, and I've mentioned this, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but he was the co-creator and writer of Space Cases on Nickelodeon, the uh, show that would eventually evolve into a, uh, the new Star Trek Prodigy series that came that came out that's coming out soon. 
way back in 1996. Well, I don't know if we know if it evolved. It just <laughs> it looks, looks like it. it looks remarkably similar. But I mean, it, so it's sort of the it's the modern day equivalent of the you know did did uh, DS9 rip off Babylon Five controversy? I guess it's the did did Star Trek Prodigy rip off uh, Space Cases? And he he created gotta, that with Peter David, right? Correct. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. So, so Peter David's kind of interesting. He's a he, he's a comics writer and he does a lot of tie in novels for uh, for Star Trek, for Babylon 5, I think for a couple other 90s uh, sci fi properties. I think he, I think David might have even written an episode or two of Babylon 5, the TV show, which is, uh, you know, that until recently, that wasn't things that tie in novelists usually did. They usually just got stuck with tie in novels. So, okay, interesting. Interesting. So, what are, are you? Do you have any thoughts on Lanier as a whole? We we kind of talked about his uh, the actor and the sort of broader uh, TV sci fi connections. But well, any thoughts on the character of Lanier so far? Well, when he shows up, he wants to. Uh, he, he says certain things to Delin that exp- they talk about, like the Gray Council mm. and uh, things that we haven't really been we we've kind of hinted at before, but really haven't been exposed to. And Delens basically tells him, you know, shut up, you won't call me that. You know, you won't call me by my, uh, it's an official title. Hold on, I've read it down. Satai. Satai, yes. You won't refer to me as that, and you will not mention the Grey Council again. You'll just call me by my, you know, by Delin. He seems a little put off by this at first, but then he realizes, like, this is his job, so he just kind of falls in line. But the, it just adds more to that mystery of what's going on with Delin. What does she, what does she really represent, which we mentioned in previous episodes. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. He's sort of set up as this kind of like overeducated novice, almost seems to kind of be how right. It, yeah, and I mean, and I think that's how they set Veer up too. But with Veer, they at least right now they're tending to play him only for comedy, whereas Lanier, you know, is is allowed to look a little bit ridiculous, but he's not quite like the bud of the show's humor in the way that Veer Londo's uh, Centauri aide is. A couple of things that I pointed out in the episode just as I was going through that I just wanted to bring up real quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jakar uh, eating a dog's head. Did you notice that? <laughs> I uh, I only noticed it after you mentioned it. And he's, he's eating a dog head and singing. He sings some like really weird chant or something. I don't know what it was, but that was kind of a WTF moment in that episode. Oh, I, was like, wasn't I, it? A, wasn't it some sort of old Earth song? Like my yeah, it was like a shanty or something. I don't know what. It, yeah. yeah. Oh, a sea shanty. Yeah. Apparently, all the all the Zoomers love sea shanties now. Another thing, Zorak returns again. This is his, I guess his third appearance at this point. Something like that. And he provides a bodyguard car. So Zorak is just head of this underground black market. As you've been watching more, does he continue to show up? Um, he's not done. I think he has a couple more season one appearances, but, uh, I don't believe he appears after season one is my understanding. I, I wonder if you ever see his full body because I, I feel like you just see his upper, his upper torso part, like his upper like claw I don't, things. I don't think you ever see any more than what you're seeing now, but I could be wrong. Like I would die laughing if like you saw it was just like a human bottom like part in the like <laughs> Yeah, just some guy walking around to the craft yeah. who service table with that on top and just normal human yeah. torso and legs. <laughs> Two other quick points I wanted to make was it's sort of interesting. We uh Jacquard doesn't really go to the station personnel for help dealing with this assassination plot. Uh because 
he has a shady political past and he's afraid that it would threaten his standing among the uh, other ambassadors. And so it's kind of an interesting echo of how he blackmails Londo uh, in the TV movie because Londo's grandfather apparently was a war criminal during the occupation of Narn and uh, Jakar has the goods on Londo's granddad. And then this, the last point I wanted to make about this episode was, and this maybe kind of ties back to our discussion about the, the diversity of human cultures versus the monolithic nature of uh, alien cultures and TV SF. But we do find out that the Centauri used to have a sibling species on the world, the Zahn, but uh, they genocided them all. And so it's told as a joke and it is pretty funny, but it's also kind of a, a grim insight into the Centauri character. And maybe it sort of gives an explanation for the monolithic nature of the, you know, the Centauri, that they had this kind of aggressive and violent past that created this monoculture. It was funny to you, but I had no idea how to take that when I heard it. I was like, what? Especially the way it was presented with uh, at the celebration. You've got yeah. uh, Yvonne of a drunk there. You've got everybody else that's like having a good time. And Sinclair, of course, has a stick up his butt, but he's so focused on his... Uh, old flame showing it back up on the uh, on the station yeah very distracted very distracted i mean yeah. i think the performance that veer and londo do to delivering the fact about the fact that they exterminated the zon is funny and i think the reaction to i think the reactions like of, ugh, from you know uh from the humans yeah. and from the minbari are funny i, I grant you that yeah, the actual fact of the extermination yeah. is not funny but like the, i think the performance and the way it's received is dark is darkly funny it really it says something about londo's character though right there it kind of stuck with me yeah well like, and even beer who's usually portrayed as like a very like good natured guy kind of you know just goes along with it and doesn't seem to think anything is very weird about it <laughs> all right um so let's uh we'll pivot to battle lines uh, episode 13 of ds9 season one so in the a plot which is really the only plot although i guess you know you have o'brien and dax trying to rescue these people but the a plot is a uh, Cisco, uh, Matira, Dr. Bashir, and Kaio Paka, who's the Bajoran religious leader, the Bajoran Pope that we met uh, in the pilot. They're uh, in a runabout. Um, they're taking the Kai for her first excursion through the, through the wormhole into the Gamma Quadrant, and they get stranded on a Gamma Quadrant moon amidst two warring factions of exiles who've been um, confined to this planet. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much battle lines. Uh, what'd you think, Matt? Yeah, Kyle Parker showing back up. I was like, okay, this is going to be a, a Jordan religion prophet centered episode of some sort, but it really wasn't. With the Kai, Kai reminds me of like the Russian babushkas when she shows up. She does have like a big, uh, big uh, Russian grandmother energy, or do you mean like there's nesting dolls? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. She gets big Russian grandmother energy. I mean, she just has this automatic, like, she's drawn to the wormhole. She wants to know more about it. And, like, uh, when she first shows up on the station, of course, they tell her that there's no ships that are supposed to come through. So Benjamin Sisko's like, all right, I guess we can go and give you a ride. You know, he's just, like, smirking out the side of his mouth because he, he wants to please this Majoran leader. And then, you know, they go in the wormhole. They wind up on, in the uh, Gamma Quadrant. 
they crash onto this planet and the people there I felt like they were kind of like rejects from some other show like I don't know where they got the costumes from or whatever but they just seemed like they were from something else like I don't know like Hercules or something was filming at that time and they just like to grab the outfits <laughs> they were like Mad Max Mad Max looking I guess like I, I don't know I don't know how to explain their their look but then the, the actor that plays the, their leader Gave me really big Sylvester Stallone, Mickey Rourke vibes. You mean Johnny Jonathan Banks? Yes, Jonathan Banks. Okay, yeah, you you knew who he was. I didn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that's Mike from Breaking Bad. Okay, there we go. I did not know that, and I should have looked that up. Now that makes sense because you were like telling me about the guy, and I was like, uh, to me, he looked like Mickey Rourke or Sylvester Stallone. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. that, that yeah, makes I mean, that makes sense now. Okay. Yeah, granted, this is like a dozen years or so before Breaking Bad, but yeah, maybe like more like fourteen or fifteen years before Breaking Bad. But yeah, yeah, no, it's it's interesting because he he you mostly think of him for crime shows. Like the two shows I associate with him are there was this late '80s crime show called Wise Guy, where he was he was like the sort of um, Commissioner Gordon figure or like the uh, the sort of liaison figure for an for this. Uh, FBI agent, although I think they, they call him something, they, they don't call it the FBI, but he's an FBI agent who goes undercover and um, and uh, Jonathan Banks plays his handler and he's this real kind of like ball busting, kind of laconic cold guy and then you, you see a lot of that in, in his portrayal as Mike on uh, Breaking Bad who's in later Better Call Saul where he's this kind of facilitator for uh, different criminal organizations but yeah, I, as much as I love Jonathan Banks, you know, you can't really say that uh, his uh, his sort of energy jives with uh, TV science fiction. I just I just don't. This was that. not his finest role. This no, was totally no. not his finest role. It was not a. Uh, yeah, he's so bad that I didn't even catch on that was him. Wow, it's funny because I'll recognize the most random characters like out of nowhere, and you and you you can just pull out anybody. I I just like okay, that's that's that was like like we we've been watching a couple episodes ahead and. Like well, you end up seeing like the, the judge from Ghostbusters plays a Cardassian later on. For some reason, I know this, but I didn't recognize Mike from Breaking Bad as one of the as the. Uh, I mean, he is under leader. a lot of makeup. To be fair, yeah, yeah you're just yeah. making excuses, for him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and like I said, it's it's not a good performance, um, but it, it's also very. It's just not a well written character, and ultimately, I just. I just don't think like the sort of energy that Jonathan Banks has is very compatible with early. I don't think the overall plot of this episode was very well written, honestly. Like I don't, I wasn't, I didn't care for it much. Just the the idea that the planet can resurrect, like you just these people are constantly at war with each other, and then they are resurrected after they after they after fighting after they die, so they're just constantly in battle, and they they won't come together and try to work out peace, and then. Bashir tries to figure out what's going on, and it takes him like uh, you know thirty minutes to figure out what they've probably been trying to figure out for like decades. That if they leave the planet, they're going to die. They can't survive unless they stay on the planet. Of course, Bashir figures this out like at the very at the most like opportune moment. Did you catch on to that? That was like no, super I didn't. science fiction trope. He basically yeah. jumps into the middle of the fight. And he's like, "Don't let them kill you, because if you can't, if you do die, you can't come out. You can't leave the planet." Like I think Cisco's like mid punch or something like that. And, <laughs> or, no, no, I'm sorry, like, Cisco's about to be shot, 
And I guess Cisco at this point was just like, okay, well, they're all coming back. I'll just come back too. And then she was like, no, don't do that. I mean, honestly, the only reason we covered this is just because it writes Kaiopaka off the show, um, which is, you know, a sort of like plot significant thing. And I don't know, it's just, it's a weird choice because she's set up in the, uh, the emissary is um, such a big deal. And it, it, you know, you get the, you get the impression from emissary that she's going to be in future episodes. And then, you know, they just decided to write her off in her second appearance. Did you, did you have any thoughts about that? Did they really write her off though? Cause she stays on the planet. So, I mean, there's still that possibility. It's like they left it where if they wanted to, they could find some way, like maybe they found some magical cure at some point to fix these, these microbes that are causing problems. Yeah. I, I guess they, I guess they write her off in a, in a way that they can always come back to. It's not like Kodoth who just gets airlocked and who's gone. So they could have, they could have always come back, but they, they never do. Apparently there is a, apparently in the reboot uh, DS9 novels or not reboot from the relaunch DS9 novels, Jake does go back to this planet. Um, and I, I don't know if he frees her or not, but I don't know. I, I honestly can't say that I'm dying to read that novel. <laughs> that does not sound interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't really have very much else to say about this. I mean, one thing just to as kind of we're keeping an eye on Cisco's character, it is pretty interesting that we see him get really heated in this episode, um, <laughs> both with Kira because Kira kind of really enthusiastically takes sides in this conflict, which you know is kind of a kind of a Starfleet no go for a couple of reasons, and then on the other hand. Um, when Cisco is proposing his plan, Bashir questions if it affects the prime directive and Cisco gets really heated and really defensive about no, uh, you know, the prime directive clearly doesn't apply here. And so I don't know, that's just sort of interesting is this more fiery portrayal of Cisco. I mean, granted, he's under a lot of stress, but I don't think, yeah, I don't I, think I, uh, I, they would write like uh, Picard being quite this uh, volatile in similar situations. No. Kira is definitely like the kind of person that I can't stand working with. So Why is that? It just, she's just kind of like, like how quickly she took sides in the matter instead of being diplomatic. I guess there's no real, like she wasn't diplomatic at all. And you see this more and more as the show goes on, you know, she just kind of, she's always siding with, she's always picking a side like immediately. There's no uh, middle ground. Maybe I think later on I start to, I think I'm more accepting of her, but in these first few episodes, I'm just like, I cannot stand just how she acts. Uh, I, I will say, the, though, I, I, I grant that she's kind of annoying in this episode, but I, I think the episode does, I will give it some credit. I, I think it does say something a little interesting about her character. Like, there is a way that, like, she she's confused and torn up about um Kaiopaka's seeming death when the when the runabout crashed on this moon and so her throwing herself into the conflict I, I think the episode presents it as like you know she needs to take sides in this war so she can have a sense of meaning and you know obviously that kind of rhymes with her past in the Bajoran underground and so I I, I can appreciate that I, I grant I grant that it's not like it's not a very attractive episode for her but I, I would also say even I really liked how they wrote Kira in um, the third episode of DS9, a past prologue, where she's really getting in Cisco's face, but she's not doing it for like stupid personal reasons exactly. Like she's doing it because she has a very clear idea of 
you know, what politically needs to happen for Bejor, and she sees Cisco dragging his feet or obstructing that, and so she just goes at him. And I, I think that's actually a pretty, a pretty interesting angle for the character. And in some ways, I wish that had continued more, where like, you know, Cisco's interest is representing Starfleet are not going to be the same as Kira's interest representing Bejor. And I think a lot more useful friction could have come up, come from that, which granted, I don't know if the, I don't think the friction between Cisco getting irritated at her in this episode is, is that useful or interesting, but just in general, like, I think that friction could have been profitable for the show if they kept at it. You mentioned Cisco and Bashir in this episode. Uh, Bashir makes like this joke about, like, about the people on the planet having finished up their prison sentences by this point. And uh, Cisco goes off on this year after he says that. Mm. I didn't mm. catch that. I didn't catch that. That's funny though. That is. That is <laughs> yeah. Funny. It, like Cisco doesn't like want that kind of sense of humor at this point when they're, I guess, when they're stranded on the planet and not really sure what's going down. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I kind of, I kind of like that. Though. I like that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because it is not, it's not really a very fri- a frivolous uh, topic, right? Like these, these um, guys are condemned to this kind of awful living death. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, do you want to go ahead and move into like more comparative uh, questions? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I guess I'll start with a minor one. This is just a, no- a notation of we've been tracking Godfather references. So uh, last week we had a Godfather uh, reference when Quark is playing the Nagus and, you know, kind of doling out favors and people are coming to him for favors. And then this week we have a reference to that famous scene in the godfather where the head of a studio uh wakes up with uh, the uh, beheaded head of his uh, favorite horse in his bed because he won't let the uh, frank sinatra stand in out of a contract and so the equivalent is jakar wakes up with a death blossom in his bed uh so it's, it was kind of a nice little uh homage to that godfather scene and so that was the my mi- the minor comparison i had and then did you have anything for a thirst watch Oh yeah, uh, one of, and this is where we learn that Jakar apparently has a fascination with Earth women. Uh, I mean, big time. Uh, he had like women's panties in his uh, quarters. Yeah, and I think we sort of got that impression too, because isn't it in the TV movie where he's propositioning uh, Lyda Alexander, the first station telepath, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, the, like apparently it's common knowledge though because his, the aide knows like the aide mentions it yeah yeah no that's interesting and it, it'll it'll keep coming up in small ways but uh it it's kind of funny like it's i don't know it's it's almost played like it's kind of like a political liability for him you know because he's like this sort of part of this defensive rising power um, so I, I don't know, but it, it, it is a sort of, sort of interesting joke. Like it, when he's propositioning Lida in the TV movie, it felt creepy, but, um, the, in, in this episode and the subsequent episodes, it feels a little more wholesome to me, if that distinction makes sense. So another thing too, that I, I noticed, uh, you know, looking at the different religious aspects of both, uh, there was a scene in Parliament of Dream where, uh, Delin is talking about the she's going through the ceremony okay mm-hmm. and within the ceremony there's all these weird things going on and uh, they're it almost looks like uh, it's not easy to follow what they're doing 
but at some point they're all asked to eat fruit or some sort. It's like a cherry or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Delenn puts the cherry in her mouth and you're just like, okay, that's whatever. But she's looking straight at Sinclair. And then she says, so it begins. Does what's going on there? <laughs> There's something. I, uh, I don't Is feel like I can say what I know goes on there, but I will say that this uh, this ceremony comes up again. Weirdly, I, I just watched a season three episode last night where this uh, the ceremony sort of comes up again. So um, it does uh, that. There, there's a kind of continuing trope of like the Minbari trying to get the other people to engage with their ceremonies. And okay, because I, I I was confused <clears throat> because those were her words. So it begins, and then later on, Catherine mentions that that was considered a wedding ceremony. They like I said, they don't really make it clear like when you're seeing the ceremony what's yeah. going on. Although she does she does throw in the caveat like I think it's uh, it's something the effect of depending on how seriously the people involved take it. I think it's her caveat. Right. So I, I don't like. Does that mean? Did Sinclair get married to Delenn? Did, I, I, I don't know. I have I, like I just I'm trying to pick up because I know there's some weird stuff going on there. I just don't know what it is. I don't um, think that's uh, immediately going to be followed up on, but it it's clear it is setting up for plot in later seasons of the show. But then later on, uh, to kind of make the connection to the to the DS9 episode, uh, you know. At one point, does Opaka refer to Cisco as the emissary within the episode itself? Um, I don't remember. You'd think she would have, but I can't. I, I can't they, remember. They, I think she does, yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to think of like, okay. Once again, there's this weird like, I don't know, mysticism, religious something going on there. I, I don't know. Like, I know what's going on in DS9, but I, I have no clue what's going on in the long five. Well, it's that, it's that interesting trope. I think both shows do this to an extent where like alien religions are fulfilled to some extent by human characters, which is a, which is a sort of weird and interesting trope. Um, it, I mean, honestly, in some ways it kind of reminds me of how like in you know, fiction of the British empire, you would have, uh, you know, you would have some British explorer, you know, stumble upon, uh, some tribe or some society and then you know get get acclaimed as like gods or something and it so it's it's a, it's a little bit of like a colonial fiction trope almost but yeah it's it's something that comes up in both ds9 and babylon 5 of like you know alien religious prophecies and alien religious uh alien religions extending out to these like human figures um one of the things, just real quick comparison we can finish up, was that uh, Catherine mentions how expensive stuff is on uh, Babylon 5. Like, I think a loaf of bread or a thing of bread was like $5 or something like that. Which is just further proof that like on, you'd much rather live in like the Star Trek universe where uh, stuff's free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, where the replicator's <laughs> been invented. Like, you know, I have a feeling like in Real life is going to end up like uh, Babylon Five at some point. We're just going to end up like, okay, you can go live on the space station, but it's going to be really expensive. Well, the the caveat there might be that, like, on DS Nine, um, 
you know, you can get replicated copies of anything you want or not anything, but a lot of things you might want and everything you would need. But I, I think there is the implication it throughout like Star Trek that like replicated stuff isn't as good as like, you know, actual fruit, actual vegetables, actual meat, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so it, you know, I don't know how, it, I don't know in the Star Trek, you know, kind of post-scarcity socialist economy, like how you would ration like scarcity, but it does seem like you would have the, uh, the issue too of like, if you wanted to do like, you know, an authentic sort of meal with like fresh ingredients, there, there might be a fair amount of expense to that in the Star Trek universe too, just of like getting, getting something, you know, shipped out so far, but you're, you're definitely right that it's much, it's played up much more directly in Babylon 5 and like also the, the food options that people have on Babylon 5 just seems so much more limited. All right, so what are we looking at next week? Uh, we're looking at Mind War, which is a, a great uh, episode of Babylon 5 and introduces an important part of uh, the Babylon 5 mythos. And then we're looking at the Forsaken, which uh, I think is a really fun um, DS9 episode and uh, re- brings in one of my favorite characters from the next generation. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Uh, so this was uh, Bob from Cascadia, had Matt from the Southland online, and we were covering a DS9 v Babylon 5. We'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at B5VSDS9 at gmail.com. And we will answer your question on the show. Uh, we plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future. So if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.